Father, we come tonight and we ask that as we open your word, that you would open up the ears of our heart, that we might hear you speak to us. We ask that it would encourage those of us who are struggling, that would confront those of us who are walking in destructive ways. Lord, we pray that it would heal those of us who are hurting, that it would guide all of us into a deeper knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, and it's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, tonight I start by giving you the carol latte. The carol latte. If you like carrots and you like lattes, this might be the drink for you. Gross, right? Does anybody really want to consume this thing? You know, the mark of a great cook is that they can understand the underlying properties of some food and they can understand what the missing ingredient is that would bring it all together. So at one time, somebody looked at a couple of pieces of bread, and then they looked at some crushed uh, hard-boiled eggs, and they thought if there was only some kind of you know, thick sauce, some kind of um, really nice creamy substance, and as they were sitting there thinking about this, then suddenly the word mayonnaise went through their mind, and lo and behold, the egg salad sandwich was born, right? Just like that. Well, tonight we're going to take a look at two stories. I hope you're able to track with the readings, two stories that are very different. But when you realize the key ingredient, you're going to see that they actually come together in quite a delicious way, not like a carolate, okay? Um, but first I should say something about uh, uh, why in the world I'm standing up here in front of a set that looks like we're somewhere outside of Sedona. So let me say something about that, okay? Okay. Uh, we have been going through a series in Exodus, and it's called Wilderness. And it's a series where we've been tracking with the people of Israel as they have journeyed from departing from Egypt and as they're heading to the Promised Land. And see, the book of Exodus starts off in a pretty bad situation. The people of Israel are enslaved. They're underneath this tyrannical king of Egypt. It's called Pharaoh. And they are oppressed and they are in need of deliverance. So God raises up Moses. And Moses is to lead his people to freedom. And he does this through a number of astounding miracles in the book of Exodus. And it climaxes with, with the parting of the Red Sea. And as they pass through the Red Sea, uh, the Hebrews go from being an oppressed, a slave, enslaved people to a free nation. And if you're looking at the book of Exodus, chapter 15 is pivotal. Because in chapter 15, it starts off with them being free. And they're so excited. And the first half of chapter 15 is nothing but this giant song of praise. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I'll praise him. So the first half of Exodus 15 is just filled with so much joy. We're free of Pharaoh. And then things start to shift. Because on one hand, they're free, but on the other hand, Israel now finds themselves in a strange, new, and unprecedented environment. It's a place of disruption, a place where there's not any food or water. It's a place where everything is upturned. This is called the wilderness. It's the wilderness. It's a place in between, a place where the old way of life is disrupted. And resolution has not yet appeared 
The wilderness is where the people of God find themselves wandering. They find themselves untethered. They find themselves in a liminal space. They find themselves in places of temptation, as we've seen. They find themselves hungry. They find themselves in difficulty. They find themselves grumbling. They find themselves with daily change because they're constantly on the move, and yet that change has a monotony to it. And this should sound familiar. Of course, right? (laughs) This resonates with our own situation with COVID. We've left a world we knew and we're heading to some other post-COVID world and we're not sure when that's going to emerge. And our lives are in this strange liminal in-between space. And here's the thing. The wilderness can kill you. The wilderness is not a safe place. The wilderness is dangerous, but it's also a place where God can do incredible things. It's a place that can be incredibly generative. It's a place in which God can work in his people and among his people and transform his people such that when they come out of that wilderness, they are a different people and they are ready. And so that's our hope. And that's why we're doing this series. So that's where we've been. And tonight we're going to take a look at two episodes on the people of Israel's journey. And although they appear to be two very separate things, I believe with the right ingredient, they come together quite nicely. The first is the story of Amalek, the story of Amalek. And as you heard read, Amalek came and picked a fight with Israel. And Moses then orders Joshua to go and select some men to fight Amalek. And he says, and tomorrow we'll do this fight and I'll go up on the hill and I'll stand up there with the staff of God, God's staff. And Joshua, of course, does what Moses orders. And Moses and Aaron and her on the next day go up to the top of this hill. And it turns out in this strange way, this is a very different thing that's happening with the staff now, that when he holds the staff up, the people of Israel are winning the battle. But when the staff drops down, they're losing the battle. And of course, You know, I don't know how many of you are really good at just holding objects up over your head for long periods of time, but just try it sometime. You might think you're strong. I mean, (laughs) that's, it's hard, right? And so Moses can't do it. And he, not only that, but he doesn't want to be standing there all day. And so her and Aaron, they go and they get a, they get a rock and he'd sit on that. And then they help him keep his hand steady all the way through the day until the sun goes down and Joshua defeats the Amalekites. Amalekites or the nation of Amalek. Now, I want to point out a few things for you about this first story. And what I want to point out to you is that Amalek came and fought with Israel. The Amalekites were the aggressors. In fact, in Deuteronomy 25, uh, the people of Israel are looking back 40 years uh, back into this battle. We actually hear a little bit more about what they came to do. There, we read, undeterred by the fear of God, Amalek surprised you on the march when you were famished and weary and cut down all who were lagging behind. So we hear a little bit more about what happened here. Amalek decided to go after Israel when Israel was at its weakest point, when they were famished, when they were weary. But not only that, we hear something that's worse. They go after those who were straggling, those who were separated, those who were alone, those who were not with the rest, straggling in the rear. Who would have been lagging behind? It would have been the elderly. It would have been small children. 
It would have been mothers caring for small children. See, there's a brutality here. There's a certain darkness in what they're doing. Amalek does not, as we read here, fear God. They are undeterred by the fear of God. And the book of Exodus now should be ringing a similar note. The book of Exodus is ringing a similar note about another certain kind of situation where there was an oppressive group that didn't fear God. Uh, If you'll remember, when Moses was a child, the king of Egypt commanded that all the midwives were to kill all the male Hebrew babies. And then we read in Exodus, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. See, the Bible tells us that every single person is made in the image of God. And as a result of that, to brutalize someone, whether they're because they're weak, are marginalized, are defenseless, uh, whether they're elderly or whatever it is, is to, be, is to do something that is an affront to the God who made them in his image. And so in the Bible, you read all these verses that talk about the correlation between treating people with dignity and respect regardless and fearing God. Like Leviticus 19.4, you shall not insult the deaf or place a stumbling block before the blind. You know, if you insult a deaf man, you know, <laughs> it's, you know it's, it's a certain kind of weird cruelty because he can't even hear it, right? Or if you place a stumbling block before the blind, how cruel is that? Because, you know, they can't see what's going to happen. Or Leviticus 19.32, you shall rise before the aged and show deference to the old, for you shall fear God. Um, so, you know, there's this, there is this cruel people, Amalek, and they're brutal. And they represent in many ways what the people of Israel left behind. They represent this kind of pharaonic darkness that wants to destroy them. And what this tells us is that in the wilderness, God's people will be confronted with dark forces, dark powers that would seek to undo them as a new creation of God. The wilderness is not to be played with. It's not a safe place. And there are dark forces that will challenge your faith. And some of you, if I can give a little application right now, have faced some of that in this wilderness. Some of you have lost your job or your marriage is on the rocks or you've become exhausted and weary. And maybe you're saying, what's the point of following Jesus? What's the point? Some of you have seen your faith wane and you are in danger of going back to Egypt or being overcome by Amalek. Darkness is afoot in the wilderness. The story goes on. Moses recognizes this is an emergency. He tells Joshua to get the troops ready, and they are fighting for their lives. He divides up the labor. He gets everybody moving, and he heads up the hill with the staff. And why the staff? Well, the staff is the staff of God. This is actually the title of it. And if you know the story of Moses, um, this staff is it's actually quite important at this point of the story. It's, you can do a whole like, Bible study on the staff. It comes up all the time. You know, during the plagues, God told Moses to wave the staff at certain times and then certain plagues would pop up, you know, touch the Nile and the Nile turns to blood or frogs come out or, you know, know, go over the earth and suddenly there's gnats, you know. The staff is used to part the Red Sea, you know. God says, just touch the, wave it in front of the sea, it it parts. Uh, We read about the staff being used in order to strike the rock for there to be water. So the staff is a symbol and a vehicle of the saving power of God. 
Um, and in raising it, Moses is making an appeal to the saving power of God as he raises a staff, right? So, and, and so then, but there's something strange this time. In all the other instances, the staff kind of works automatically, <laughs> you know? Like, you just touch it, boom, done. But in this situation, it's almost like the staff, it's like a throttle, for God's power, right? There's something strange about this. When Moses raises the staff, the people of Israel get the upper hand, but when Moses lowers the staff, they lose the upper hand. And because it's too much for Moses, he needs help. So Aaron and Hur get him a rock to sit on and hold his arms up until evening. And I was going to ask for maybe, you know, for Luther and Jim Alden to come up and hold up my arms for a little bit, just so you could see what that's like. But we're not going to do that. Don't worry. Uh, but that's, you know, just get, get that image, right? They're on both sides as he's there, you know, and till evening, like they had to be there with him together. And so in this unique situation, it's not just that the staff of God works, but the staff of God works that appeal to the saving power of God as the people of God work together. That's very key. It's not just working alone. It's working. This is a case of synergy where God and man are working together in the wilderness. So much for the story of Amalek. In our second story, there's an entirely different kind of foreigner that shows up on the scene, and that foreigner is Jethro, prince of Egypt, right? <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love the prince of Egypt. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. So who's Jethro? Well, we read that Jethro is a prince. Uh, I'm sorry, he's a priest of Midian. Midian is kind of a general region. It's kind of like the word in, you know, back then meant just kind of like out west, okay? But it's actually a people group. He's a priest of Midian. He's the father-in-law of Moses. And we, we found out that he had heard the report of all God had done. That reached all the way to Midian. And, um, and the news of what God had done for his people Israel. And that news um, got to Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. And so Jethro, it says, brings Moses' sons and his wife there in the wilderness. Now, we didn't read in Exodus where Moses sent off his sons and his wife. But we're guessing, my guess would be, and a lot of scholars guess, is just simply, if you're having a showdown with the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, it's a good time to get the wife and kids and send them you know, somewhere, somewhere far away. And that's probably what happened. So Jethro brings Moses' uh, wife and his sons there in the wilderness where he's camped. And when he comes, Moses tells his father-in-law the story of all that God has done and what's happened and there in the wilderness. And then the next day, Moses does what apparently he's been doing every day. He sits and he judges people's different issues. People stand before him all day uh, long, and it says from morning to night. And when Moses' father-in-law sees this, his mother's father-in-law sees what he's doing, he says, what's going on here? This, is, this isn't going to work. You need some delegation here, okay? You're letting everybody stand around all day, and you're here from morning to night. So Moses' father-in-law says, I've got an idea. What you need to do is you need to listen to me. This is, this is not going to work. You're not going to be able to pull it off alone. What you need to do is you need to get some people of integrity, people who fear God, people who are not corruptible, and appoint them as leaders, and they will share your load. So Moses listened to the counsel of his father-in-law and did everything he said. All right, so this is the story of Jethro, story number two. And as I already said, Moses is dealing with a very different kind of foreigner. Uh, Amalek wanted to undo Israel's great rescue, right? But the priest of Midian, Jethro, he is there to celebrate 
and secure Israel's great rescue. A few things to notice uh, here, okay? Uh, First off, Moses is very bold in sharing the good news of what God has done, the rescue of what God has done. Moses shares with his father-in-law, this Midianite priest. By the way, a Midianite priest was a pagan priest, okay? So this isn't a Yahweh follower uh, necessarily, but he seems to be pretty impressed. He's, you know, he's, he seems to be maybe converting here, all right? Definitely amazed by what Yahweh has done. And, and Moses shares with him all that he does. And I love the way that Moses shares it. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them all. It's not a bait and switch. When Moses shares the gospel of what Yahweh has done to rescue his people and to save them, he's very honest about it. It's good news, but it's been hard. (laughs) Okay, it'd be a testimony of like, I came to Christ and you know what? It's been hard, but God is good and he's gotten me through, right? So this is a real, I I just wanted to point that out. I thought that was cool. And then of course, uh, as the story goes, the next day is bring your pagan Midianite priest father-in-law to work day. And so Moses brings him to work, right? And lo and behold, it's, it's not working out, okay? Everyone's standing around. Moses is there all day and everyone's exhausted, right? And, um, and, uh, and so then Moses' father-in-law turns out to be a great consultant. You know, a lot of times companies pay a lot of money for a consultant to come in and find out what's not working and you'll get like a hundred page document and it's really just kind of, you know, a lot of, I'm sorry if you're a consultant, I'm sure you're not this way, but a lot of consultants are just yes men. They just want to tell you what you want to hear. This is not Jethro. The Hebrew is very succinct. Jethro's words are literally, this does not work. <laughs> like, he's just like, no, this does not work. What are you doing, okay? Definitely an eight on the Enneagram. No problem confronting what's going on with Moses, okay? Uh, I know a lot of you are thinking as you hear about them standing around all day, you're thinking like, could, is there some way that, we get someone like Jethro down at the DMV. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, um, so no way. This is not working. You're exhausting these people. You're not going to make it, Moses. And the thing that's lovely is it says Moses has no problem doing everything that his father-in-law, his pagan, maybe, you know, new believer in Yahweh, father-in-law, tells him to do. So there you have it. Those are the two stories. Now the question comes, how do these two fit together? I've got 10 minutes to talk to you about how these two fit together. Um, Moses' father-in-law comes for a visit, and we see the story of war. And some of you are thinking, well, they fit together naturally. Every time my in-laws come, there's a war. (laughs) This, This makes complete sense to me. And all I have to say to you is shame on you for talking politics with family, okay? Wow, yeah. A little too close for home, right? All right. If I was to say what the missing ingredient is in one word, I would say it's this word, alone. In both of these stories, Moses finds himself alone and he's not going to make it. Have you been there? Have you found yourself where you're not going to make it alone? 
You know, 2021 marks the 10th anniversary where I wasn't going to make it alone. A decade ago, I had a beautiful family, I had a beautiful home, I had a, a job I loved, and my life unraveled. I lost my beautiful family, I lost my home, I found myself unemployed, and I slipped into a chronic depression. I remember I cried every day, sometimes multiple times a day, for three months. Those were dark days. I was in my own wilderness. The world I had known had slipped away, and I did not know what the future held. My life was untethered. I was exhausted. I was disoriented. And I let some people know I was crying out for help. And a group of men from my church said, we're not going to let you do this alone. And they came into my life. And when I didn't have two dimes to rub together, they said, we've bought a vacation for you. You just need to jump on the airplane with us. We're going together. And I couldn't tell you all the names, but my buddy Tim Talley and Nathan Mead said, we're going to take you hiking on a regular basis. My buddy Eric Daly said, I'm cycling with you. I'm going to be with you. My friends Corey Wilson and Jeff Lingle and Jeremy Dorse and Richard Mollis, people you may never meet, they were with me. And I didn't face that alone. They cried with me. They walked with me. And every Wednesday night, somebody would show up. And we'd eat the same Trader Joe's pizza. And someone was in my home when I needed someone in my home. Because it was hard. And I couldn't do it alone. You know, I stand before you as Dr. Dr. Reverend whatever, Robert Cavolo. <laughs> you know, I lose track. But, you know, if you're looking at me, I want you to know something. All you're looking at is a turtle on a fence post. When you see a turtle on a fence post, you know one thing. That turtle did not get there by himself. Somebody put him there. So when you look at me, what you can't see is my parents who created opportunities I would not have had. You can't see my junior high pastor who loved me. He, he showed me the love of Jesus. You can't see my high school pastor who provided me opportunities for maturing that I needed at that age. You can't see my college pastor who was okay with me having all kinds of doubts about the whole Christian faith and just being a faithful presence. You can't see my seminary professors who helped me understand how to move through all kinds of situations. You can't see my midnight priest pagan bosses who spoke wisdom into my life. And you can't see my friends, the friends without which I wouldn't be standing here. When we think of people in the Bible who are great, the Bible's pretty clear that Moses is at the top of the list. As it says in Hebrews, Moses was faithful in all of God's house. He, he has pride of privilege. And what was it that made Moses so great? Was it his noble birth? Was it that he was eloquent? Was he physically prowless? Was he an administrative genius? No, none of these. 
you know, early on in life, Moses decides he's going to strike out and he's going to solve the world's problems and he's going to take on the problem of people's slavery on his own. And it's a complete disaster and he ends up in the backside of the desert for years. He learned right there and then he couldn't do it alone. And there he is on the backside of the desert and that's how he got all wound up with these Midianite people. Moses needed their help. He needed their help. He becomes married into the family. And when God finally does call Moses, what does Moses say? Lord, I need help. I can't talk to Pharaoh. Moses knew how to ask for help. He knew where to receive. He knew he needed help. He would ask for it from Joshua and from Aaron and from her and even from a pagan priest. See, Moses, if he had one key to greatness, it was this. He knew he could not make it alone. And so what about you? What's the wilderness been like for you? Are you going it alone? Do you know how to ask for help? In his autobiography, Hannah's Child, theologian Stanley Hauerwas, who, by the way, was named America's Best Theologian by Time Magazine, uh, he's, in, his, in his autobiography, he's trying to understand, like, how did I get named Best Theologian? And then he, he says, kind of joking, like, Best isn't even a theological category. He's befuddled by this title. After all, Hauerwas uh, says, you know, look at my life. I came from a bunch of blue-collared, foul-mouthed bricklayers in Texas. And, and he looks at his life and says, I, I spent 20 years married to a woman who had serious mental health issues, and I've struggled with the Christian faith myself. I've struggled with my own doubts. How did I, how did I become America's best theologian? You know, the closest Hauerwas comes to an answer is where he states this. I have wonderful friends. So I guess this attempt to understand myself is not really just about me, but it's about understanding the friends who've made me who I am. And so I want to ask you, who is making you who you are in the wilderness? Who is that? And who are you making? Do you know how to ask for help? And do you know how to be a help? This is what God is calling his people to do in the wilderness. You know, in uh, the Odyssey, Odysseus uh, knows what's going to happen when he's coming by uh, the island of sirens. You know, sirens are female mermaids. Uh, apparently, their singing's really good because every male sailor that gets near that island loses their mind and makes a beeline for that island, and then their ships crash on the rocks. And so Odysseus knows this is going to happen. So you know what he does? He ties himself to the mast, and then he says to his sailors, listen, listen, we are going to go into a rough time here. What's going to happen is I'm going to hear this singing, and I'm going to become crazy, and I'm going to want to head for that island. And you need to do one thing, keep rowing no matter what craziness comes out of my mouth. Just keep rowing rowing. Ignore me and just keep rowing until we get past it and I come to my senses. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, listen, I want you to give me what I need, not what I want. 
Now, this is a great example of what we need in the wilderness. We need to have people in our lives that are going to help us stay on course, who are going to keep our arms uplifted high when we want to drop them, who are going to keep us from heading into destructive things that could destroy us, who are going to speak into our lives in ways that we may not want to hear because, gosh, I guess this is a giant mess with all these people sitting around all day. And yet we need that. This is what Christian friendship is about. This is iron sharpening iron. Because we all go through times where we lose our senses. No man is an island. Every single one of us has weaknesses and temptations. Every single one of us has conditions where we will struggle. And the wilderness is especially a situation where that is true. So where are you at? Who is helping you in this wilderness? And who are you helping? I want to end with this. You know, we're a congregational church. We're not an aggregational church. And the difference between an aggregation and a congregation is massive. An aggregation is an accidental grouping, like a bag of marbles that have to be thrown together. And as soon as that bag spills, they go everywhere. And an aggregation is like where you come to hear a speaker or you go to you know, a concert. People come together and they leave. That's an aggregation. But a congregation, it's like a cluster of grapes where every single grape touches the other grape. You know, this is what we are called to be, deeply touching each other's lives and going through this together. And that's exactly what we see happening. I love when, when Jethro says, I will show you how to do this in a way in which God will be with you. And as we move towards each other and we're invested and we're helping and serving each other and we're being real about what's going on, you know what's going to happen? We're going to get through this wilderness in an entirely different place. But we need to each one of us ask, who is helping me and who am I helping? Because we have to go through this together. Amen? If you want to become a Christian... All you need is nothing. But most people don't have that. Most of us come with our recommendation letters or our titles or our resume or our morality or our money or our sufficiency or our competency. But God is not looking for that. God is looking for us to come in our weakness. God's looking for people that understand their poverty. God is looking above all for people that know they need help. Jesus said, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you need to come as a little child. And one thing that's true about children is they know they're not going to make it without help. They know they're not going to make it. Our sins, we're acknowledging that we have no other recourse but what God has done for us. We are acknowledging that we are people in need of help. And we're acknowledging that we have a God that has helped us in our deepest need. In the words of the hymn, Rock of Ages, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. And the good news is, is that we have a God who has done that. He has helped us. And we're going to celebrate that at this time. So I invite you to take out your juice and your wafer and prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. <laughs>